First, though, there is a new report out from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It is taking a look at how businesses, particularly small businesses, are feeling and their level of optimism where we're at with this pandemic. And Muriel Protzer joins me on the line, Senior Policy Analyst for BC and the North with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Muriel, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having CFIB on today. We wanted to talk to you because this takes a look at the optimism that that businesses have. And there is some optimism, which is great, but we've also seen that level drop a little bit. How How are you? What are you hearing from businesses? Yeah, so about the barometer itself, essentially it asks business owners if they expect to have a stronger or weaker performance. And there's both a three-month, indi- oh, sorry, three-month indicator, which is looking at the short-term picture, and a 12-month indicator looking at the long-term picture. So the sentiment that we're hearing from small business right now is that things are likely to get a bit worse before they get better. A lot of small businesses worried about the uncertainty around a second wave, uh, but on a positive note, saying that they can see to the other side, um, feeling a little more optimistic about their business's long-term viability. And does it break it down as far as the types of businesses and which ones might be more optimistic than others? Yeah, certainly when you start looking at different sectors, you know, we have seen the hospitality industry get hit very hard right now. Things like hotels, restaurants. Um, And then on the other side, some other industries like liquor, for example, who have seen better sales over the course of the pandemic. But once you start looking across Canada and what's happening over uh, on the East Coast, for example, we've seen both in Quebec and Ontario second closures of uh, businesses, second waves for them. And it's been very devastating over there. Businesses now seeing their revenues dropping to, you know, down 70% from uh, normal. So concerning over there, and I think we're starting to feel some of that anxiety on the coast here uh, as we start to see some of our case numbers rising. And it makes sense that when we look at Quebec and Ontario, certainly some concern there with those numbers. So we've heard from our provincial health officer that she is not anticipating any kind of return to lockdown, lockdown at least any time soon. Uh, that's got to be driving some optimism, I would think, for businesses that are, that are open and still managing to, to stay open. It's certainly reassuring to hear those words. Uh, That being said, we have actually already seen a bit of a scale back uh, in British Columbia. Last month, we saw banquet halls and nightclubs ordered to close in September. We also had stricter uh, restrictions uh, put on uh, businesses with liquor licenses. So a lot of restaurants, bars having to have last call at 10 p.m. and shutting it down by 11 p.m. So it's very difficult as a small business owner when you get kind of mixed messaging where we are rolling back some regulations, uh, but then we have the provincial health officer reassuring that there won't be second closures. I think right now to make sense of all of that is there's just a lot of uncertainty right now. We're not sure what's going to happen. And I think that a level of uncertainty and stress and anxiety is really translating in the numbers for small business owners. I mean, anytime you see a story uh, and we've been talking about it too in Victoria, a longtime pub, uh, Logan's pub, which has been there, I think for 27 years, uh, shutting down and uh, the pub owners saying COVID-19 is, is one of the reasons that even though, on Vancouver Island, the numbers are quite low, just saying in this climate, it's just not feasible anymore. And I think that really hits home for a lot of people, even when you see any business that's shutting its doors. 
it is absolutely devastating to start seeing the real impacts of this and hearing about these businesses that are closing and the jobs associated with that that have now just disappeared. And while we have seen a lot of business owners reopen their doors, return to you know full operation again, when you look at the numbers, they're just not making the same amount of sales and revenue that they're used to. In CFIB's own survey data in British Columbia, we see that only 32% of small businesses are making normal sales for this time. So that really goes to tell you that as much as we see them open and we're starting to visit our small businesses more, they're still very much struggling. And I think there's an important role for the provincial government to play here and really step up, as, especially as now we've gone through this election period. It's time for some strong leadership to make sure that we can support those small businesses and local jobs. Uh, what are you looking for as far as leadership? Well, first and foremost, uh, financial flexibility is very important to small businesses right now. Many have had to go um, into personal debt to, inc- to just weather some of this storm. I think what the provincial government has an opportunity here is to expand their small and medium size business recovery grant that was introduced right before the election happened. Now that we've seen the application process open for this grant, uh, it's become very clear that the eligibility requirements are far too strict. CFIB has had hundreds almost now of calls from small business owners saying that um, they were so hopeful that they might get access to this grant. And then once the eligibility uh, requirements were out saying, I don't make the cut, I won't be able to get this money to keep my business afloat and bring back some more employees. And that's been really devastating. Um, I think targeted relief makes sense. We do need to help those who need help the most. Uh, But right now, as the grant program is currently structured, uh, CFIB would love to see that expanded to really capture these businesses who desperately need help. And as we head into uh, the November and December time period, uh, I know this is the barometer for October. Uh, When we're talking retail, I know a lot of retail depends so much on the holiday season. Uh, There must be concerns uh, with people, uh, again, uh, not doing big celebrations, not having as many outings and gatherings and the kind of financial hit that's going to be. We have started to hear mumblings about that, too. Uh, In another recent survey that was conducted um, by Maru Matchbox, it found that Canadians plan to only spend a third of their holiday budgets at small businesses that this year. And that that is kind of concerning. Uh, A lot of businesses, you know, they rely on those summer months. And then again, that spike over Christmas, those holiday sales. And uh, with the restrictions that we're starting to see here, that it will likely be smaller gatherings. um, That is a concern for small business. And I think uh, to to address that and really talk about it is just to emphasize the importance of supporting our local businesses, even if it's going out now, starting the shopping season early and finding that unique local gift um, that you can now. It's so important that we remind ourselves that when you spend money in your local community, you're recirculating your money within it and it's benefiting your neighborhood and not just the businesses, but really your neighbors and your family and friends. And actually, CFIB is holding a contest right now to encourage Canadians to shop local. It's called the Big Thank You Contest. Uh, if you, if any of your listeners are wanting to take part on it, uh, you could win up to $500 and a gift basket that has goodies from across Canada. Uh, you just got to visit smallbusinesseveryday.ca and just thank one of your favorite local spots to enter yourself. All right. Sounds good. Muriel, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thanks so much for having CFIB on, Jill. Always a pleasure.
Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, if you ride transit, you've likely noticed that when someone gets on, whether it's a SkyTrain, a Canada Line, a bus, and is not wearing a mask, people look a little sideways often at that person. And TransLink officials have asked people repeatedly not to rush to conclusions that there could be a very good reason why someone is not wearing a mask. For me, when someone's wearing a mask under their nose, I find it more offensive because if someone's not wearing one, there is the possibility of a medical reason or that they have an exemption. And I would like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But when people are wearing a mask, you've taken the time, made the initiative to put the mask on, but you're not wearing it correctly. And don't tell me that people think wearing it under your nose is actually effective. That's where they do the COVID test. To me, that's more offensive. But when I see that, I don't do anything. I certainly don't confront the person or make a big deal about it. I just try and stay as far away from them as I can. Well, unfortunately, there is a new video. It is being shared on social media and it shows a fight that is on a SkyTrain because of one individual who's not wearing a mask. It appears that the SkyTrain is just arriving at the Joyce Collingwood station. Take a listen. And we had to uh, do some creative editing to this clip because uh, there was a lot of profanity that we cannot broadcast, but this is just a small part of the fight that another passenger recorded. So that continues. The one individual without the mask is talking about how it's fake. He's kind of antagonizing the other passengers. Other passengers get involved. It's really two men on the SkyTrain car that are in the midst of this fight. But other, you hear a woman's voice there. Other passengers do also get involved. And then, of course, there is the person who is sitting back and is recording this all on what appears to be a cell phone. So let's bring in transit police to get a bit more on uh, how often this kind of thing is happening and what transit police are advising people if you do witness anything like that. So joining me is Sergeant Clint Hampton, Media Relations Officer with Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen a few of these uh, videos pop up, uh, people who have experienced or witnessed uh, what appear to be fights over masks on transit. This latest one appeared to be by the Joy Street uh, station, one very angry man who wasn't wearing a mask and some other passengers uh, involved as well. Uh, what's What happens or how does transit police respond when you see these videos or get calls about these types of fights? Well, it's always concerning when we see a video like this come up. Unfortunately, a lot of times we are seeing these videos just like the media is, and and that's through social media. And what we'd really like to see is that if someone sees something like this unfolding, we want to be contacted so that we can hopefully intervene uh, prior to things really escalating. Uh, Has it been happening uh, frequently, or or have you been getting any uh, many calls about this? It, it, It... it isn't something I and I know I know it's it appears to be increasing and that we're seeing a lot more of these because of the the social media presence of some of these videos. Um, this isn't something that we are dealing with on a regular basis. Uh, these are still very rare circumstances. The vast majority of transit users are are completely compliant and 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 non not causing any issues on transit. Um, they're wearing their masks. 
as it is mandatory. Um, so it isn't something that we're seeing a lot of, um, but of course these videos are surfacing in, in social media and in, in some circumstances like the video that we, that we uh, see coming out this morning, um, transit police weren't contacted on that. So we're seeing it firsthand um, for, for the first time on social media rather than um, being called and being able to intervene when the incident's unfolding. So in the case like that, is it helpful for police if somebody takes a video and it's safe to do so? Does that help police then if you're also called and you're able to meet the train stay at the next platform that there is video that's available? Well, video always helps us. Um, the big issue there, and I think you, you touched on it, is that we don't want anybody to put themselves in, in danger in order to get a video. Uh, fortunately, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the SkyTrains and the stations all have, have video available for us. Um, but yes, it, it can assist us in any investigation. But again, the, the key there is that we don't want somebody to put themselves in danger in order to get a video. Uh, this particular altercation, uh, although it did look to be between two men, there were there was a woman involved and more passengers mm-hmm. on, on that train car got involved. Uh, so what should mm-hmm. people do then? Should they be texting the, the TransLink line? Should they be calling 911? What advice do you have for people when they see something like this unfolding? Well, if they see something like this unfolding, there's several uh, safety features throughout uh, the various transit systems. Um, on SkyTrain, you have things like the yellow emergency strip, the emergency phone. Um, one of the easiest things to do is you can discreetly text transit police. That goes directly to our dispatchers so that uh, we can notify our officers right away and attend. And is that the 877777 number? That's right. So eight and five sevens. And in a case like this, that other uh, passenger did get involved. I I would imagine the advice is when you see somebody who's clearly very angry. I mean, this was a man who wasn't wearing a mask, who was screaming that everything was fake Mm -hmm. and 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 very upset by this. Uh, Nobody knows, really, if we're dealing with mental health issues, what else is going on. Uh, Would you advise Mm -hmm. then for people not to get involved? Absolutely. We don't want people confronting other people over not wearing a mask. What we want is you to, if it's possible, to socially distance yourself from that person. And if you feel it's necessary, in a, in a, this is a great example where police should have been called. Um, so if, if a person deemed it necessary that police be called, then please uh, text or call transit police. Uh, if more cases like this or altercations like this, if it appears they're happening more often, would there be a change in as far as officers, the number of officers maybe riding on the trains or having more of a presence on the platforms and on transit? Well, I think those those are all options that are that are always in, in various discussions. Um, of course, this is new for all of us, and, and we're trying to navigate it and, and make sure that the traveling public are safe. That's our number number one priority. Um, so, yes, as we kind of progress, we're, we're in constant conversation um, within the Transit Police and, of course, with TransLink, um, looking at various options on, on how to best serve the uh, traveling public. The video that was posted showed the the yelling and there was some threatening, but there was no actual physical altercation. Is that a crime? Mm -hmm. Is there a crime being committed there that somebody would be perhaps arrested if police were called and attended? There, I mean, we can look at this in, in various ways. You could say, well, they've, they've caused a disturbance or potentially uttered threats against, and against one another. Um, we wouldn't likely see charges in an incident like this. Uh, this is a verbal altercation. Um, but again, this is something that could have escalated into something far more serious. 
Um, so, so the best option here, if you see anything like this unfolding, is get a hold of Transit Police. Let us intervene prior to it becoming something more. All right, uh, Sergeant, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, a new report to put out by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada finds that Cadillac Fairview, one of North America's largest commercial real estate companies, was embedding cameras inside those digital information kiosks. And this was happening at 12 malls right across Canada. And these cameras were using facial recognition technology without the customer's knowledge or consent. The company says this was to analyze the age and gender of shoppers and not to identify any individuals. But the privacy commissioner, both nationally and here in BC, has put out some recommendations saying that if Cadillac Fairview were to use this kind of technology in the future, it should take steps to obtain express meaningful consent before doing this. Well, joining me on the line is Dr. Anne Kavukian, who is the executive director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, also the former Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. What is your reaction when you hear about this? I I thought it was just outrageous. Cadillac Fairview collecting facial images. You have to understand, your facial image is the most sensitive biometric in existence. It identifies you. In the wrong hands, it can lead to identity theft and a whole host of other problems. So what were they thinking in doing this without obtaining the knowledge or consent of the individuals involved. I know that Cadillac Fairview has come out saying that they had decals at the doors that that they felt were enough (laughs) to let people know. Uh, They've also defended this saying that it didn't identify people, that they anonymously would then categorize age, range, and gender. First of all, the decals, that is ridiculous, because who reads those? (laughs) And even if you happen to read it, you then have to go to their privacy policy to find out about this, which is ridiculous. No one's going to do that. They're going to a shopping mall to shop. And that's uh, that's what is so outrageous, that they thought somehow that would be sufficient. And you're collecting someone's biometric. They may not be using it, but unbeknownst to them, it landed in the hands of a third party, which was a surprise even to them. I, I don't even understand how that can happen. But that's what happened. So you've got facial images, the sensitive biometric, now in the hands of some third party, which no one knows about. And Cadillac Fairview saying, well, you know, we did the right thing. We didn't. It's absurd. They should come out and apologize to their shoppers for having any facial image characteristics captured whatsoever without their consent. Is it surprising to you, though, that this happened? Or is it that in this case, that Cadillac Fairview was caught doing this? Should we be concerned that this is happening elsewhere and we don't know about it? I suppose we should. I Honestly, I was surprised that a company the size and stature of Cadillac Fairview, and they have lots of lawyers, I'm sure, who would have told them, don't even think about it, um, why they would consider doing this. And then the second part where the information generated from the facial images was somehow being stored by a third party. Are you kidding me? And they have no knowledge of that? That It makes no sense to me. Uh, That was what stuck out to me as well, that they stated they were unaware that the database of biometric information even existed, which how would a company even get into? So it was the the AVA beta test software that they put in these kiosks in July of 2018. Uh, How do you make that connection then that they knew they were putting in the software, but they had no idea there was a third party? 
Precisely. It, it doesn't uh, compute. It doesn't make any sense. And I really feel sorry for them that they didn't just step up and say, we shouldn't have done this. Uh, sorry, shoppers, we're not doing it anymore. You know, that's the position they should have taken. Take some responsibility having generated these facial images that are now being stored by some third party. And just be responsible and say, we shouldn't have done it. We're not going to do it again. We apologize. Don't they want to keep their shoppers? This is completely unacceptable. Uh, they did say that they, they removed all of the software more than two years ago when privacy concerns were first raised by the public, which to me yeah. was an odd way of, of saying it too, saying that if, if no concerns had been raised, they could very well still be doing this. Exactly, exactly. It just happened that someone accidentally found out they were doing this and then were outraged and were filing hundreds of complaints with the Federal Privacy Commissioner. That's why Cadillac Fairview stopped doing this in 2018, because so many people were upset about it and were filing complaints with the Federal Privacy Commissioner. And, of course, the B.C. Privacy Commissioner, Mike McAvoy, he he has also spoken out against this. There's nothing acceptable in any of this, and they should step up and truly offer some apologies to their shoppers. In addition, I would want an independent third party like a KPMG, someone, an auditor, to come in and audit what they're saying, that they haven't retained any of the data and they deleted it. We're supposed to trust them now? You know, trust but verify. That's what I would insist upon. What can people do then? I mean, this was a case, so anybody that walked up to one of those digital kiosks oh, had yes. their face scanned. So, so yes. aside from not going anywhere and staying home, how do we go out and protect ourselves? It is appalling that this type of practice exists, and we will be vigilant every time we hear about it, just like the privacy commissioners. We will speak out against it, and hopefully someone out there who has any sense will understand this is not a good idea. We better stop doing this. Uh, Do you think companies are becoming more uh, in tune with that and and realizing that, uh, yes, uh, we know that we're uh, we're caught on camera all the time in our daily lives, but this goes a step further? Oh, much step further. It is completely unacceptable, this practice. And the fact that they're showing no remorse in doing it is just appalling. So I would urge any other companies who might be doing this, get smart and put an end to it right now. Thanks for being with us. Well, this is a story you really have to see it, hear it, to believe it. When I first saw a bit of video that was shared by Burnaby RCMP this morning, I really questioned if their account had been hacked, if the video was real. Was it April 1st? What was I looking at? It is footage of a Dine and Dasher that literally goes through the roof. And joining me to talk a bit more about how this unfolded is Corporal Michael Collange, Media Relation Officer with the Burnaby RCMP. Corporal, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, so this is video of someone falling through a restaurant ceiling. What happened that led up to that moment? Uh, well, we were called by the management of, uh, of the restaurant up there near Metrotown uh, in the late hours. I believe it was actually past midnight uh, because one of their uh, diners had uh, made their way to the washroom, didn't want to pay their bill, and then climbed up into the vents in the ceiling. Uh, so they called us for a little bit of a little bit of help. <laughs> Because I was wondering how somebody would discreetly climb into the vents, but the the restaurant clearly saw this person do that. Yes, yes, they they knew that when they called us. So we we didn't know what exactly to expect when we were on our way. 
Um, but uh, our training tells us to expect the unexpected. So officers arrived, which would explain why there were already officers there when the next bit of drama unfolded. Uh, Officers were in the kitchen. I guess, did they know that this person had crawled and made their way to a different part of the restaurant? So they they could hear something going on in the ceiling. They weren't exactly sure where uh, where the patron was. Um, But as you can see in the video, uh, it becomes pretty clear when she's... uh, She's made visible by gravity. Right, because this person falls and, and is lucky that uh, that there were no major injuries. Absolutely. Uh, all kidding aside, uh, you know, our decisions, every decision we make has consequences. And she's very, very lucky that she didn't land on another person or worse yet, uh, one of the stoves uh, that could really have injured her badly. And what was the response then from officers who were standing there? My guess is they were probably thinking about, OK, we can hear this person in the ceiling. Where is she going to come out? Where where are we going to intercept this? They, they probably weren't anticipating that she was going to come crashing down. No, the, the next question uh, before she fell out would have been, you know, where does this vent lead? Where do we have to wait? How do we get her out? Uh, all those kind of questions. Uh, they didn't have to wait. Um, but yeah, it's just an, another example of some of the odd things that uh, police officers deal with on a, on a daily basis. And, and all because this person didn't want to pay the bill? Correct. Uh, she didn't feel like uh, she had to pay. Um, you know, our, we actually put it, we put this video out here. We didn't want to focus too much on her. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, isn't in the best uh, place in her life. Uh, we, there were no charges uh, came out of the, come out of this incident. Uh, that was based on uh, conversations with management and just the totality of, of the situation. But uh, we just wanted to put it out there to tell people that, you know, uh, every decision you make has consequences, whether you know what those, uh, those consequences are or not. Yeah. And and I wondered that, too, because as much as it's the video is shocking when you see this person fall out of the ceiling, um, my, my after getting over that, I realized, well, maybe we shouldn't be making fun of this person. Who knows what's happening? It's not something that uh, that you would normally do, I would think, climb into the ceiling unless this person was a chronic offender and that uh, you, you, we knew of her doing this in the past as well. But that's got to be difficult for officers, too, because you're dealing with something that's that's shocking. And then you've also got to wonder, well, what exactly are you dealing with? Well, one of the dangers of policing is falling into routine because uh, there's a lot of situations you deal with uh, with different faces and different names, but they're literally the same thing over and over. So um, you can actually see from the officers there, they kind of flinch for a second and then realize, okay, carry on because you never know what's going to happen. So we, we do like to uh, sort of expect the unexpected. Um, and that's that's exactly what happened here. Well, and that was, I think, uh, people were commenting on that as well, in that the officers are standing there, the woman falls through the, the ceiling, thankfully doesn't fall on a grill or a deep fryer or anything else that she would have been very, very hurt. But the, the one officer then just seems to very nonchalant walks over and seems to arrest her or just walks over to, to continue on. Looking at the video, you'd think he'd been through this before. Uh, he's <laughs> yes. very, very calm, very cool. Uh, made sure she was un- uninjured first and foremost, and then, uh, yeah, and then business as usual. Uh, what was the response uh, from the restaurant owner uh, to to police being there and being able to be there and defuse this very odd situation? It was late in the in the in the or I guess you could say early in the morning. Um, you know, they wanted to finish their night, uh, so they were glad to have us. Um, uh, they, they don't know what they would have done uh, if she had fallen through without police being there. But uh, luckily we were. 
Um, you know, we just put this out. We've, lately, we've been trying to uh, highlight some of the, the first responder uh, situations that our, our officers are, are uh, going through on a regular basis. So this just highlights it and gives you an idea of, uh, yeah, it's a lighter side, but it also could have ended uh, a lot differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened, was it in March that this happened? Yes, it was mid-March that this, uh, that this occurred. So just kind of as, as we were dealing with the beginning of a pandemic as well? Correct. Uh, yeah, things were a lot different then. As you can see, we're not doing the distancing. We're, we're wearing masks now when we can, of course. But uh, yeah, over the last uh, couple of months, we've, we've been doing what we call this uh, Burnaby Frontline. So we're, we're just putting out stories that uh, people can see uh, the, the, da- the daily life of the Burnaby RCMP. <laughs> Which, which is, I think, a good thing because I think there are a lot of questions about that. And obviously not every story is going to be bizarre like this one. But I think people, or are you getting response from people that they're, they're appreciative of that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have um, traffic stops that turn into drug busts or, um, you know, we have B&Es that are out of the ordinary or, you know, stolen cars. And, you know, we're putting it out there and we're getting, we are getting a lot of uh, thank yous. We, for the most part, uh, you know, there are some people that aren't are our fans and we understand that. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the public are very appreciative, appreciative of what we do. And did you decide to do that, the frontline initiative? Is that because of, of kind of increased stresses and pressures because of the pandemic, or, or was it outside of that? Uh, it's kind of twofold. So, yes, the stresses of, of the pandemic, things are totally different now. But at the same time, we're still dealing with the same uh, situation. So we just thought over here we could give um, more of a bird's-eye view of, of the day-to-day life, and we're trying to do it as quickly as we can. So if something happens... Uh, overnight and our officers are letting us know in the communications department here we can get the story out and people are appreciative because quite often we get people um, calling or even using our twitter account to say what's going on on the corner of such and such and so we're giving some of those answers at the same time sort of displaying some of the uh, the dangers that uh, the the officers are dealing with um, on an ongoing basis all right do you have any coming out that are as strange as this one (laughs) <laughs> uh, we have, well, we have a lot of strange ones. In fact, we, we just put out a, a tweet and a, and a news release regarding a, a missing person from 1984. So what we're trying to do is just steer the public to our platform so that, uh, you know, they see something like this. But we also are quite often asking the public for help. We put out uh, IDs, bulletins all the time. And the more people we can get to come in and, and have a look, uh, the, the more likely we're, we're to solve some of these, these crimes. And this most recent file, I should say, old file from 1984. Uh, we're exactly 36 years from uh, a gentleman going missing on SFU. So I think a lot of people are going are gonna to remember that if they are around. And uh, hopefully we can strike up maybe some new leads and, and help the family out in, uh, in these situations. So. Uh, I'm just looking at it now. Uh, 1984, yeah, missing Burnaby man David Campbell. So is this uh, that, uh, that all leads have been exhausted and, and putting it out there in hopes that it might trigger someone's memory? That's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, sometimes we remember things later. Uh, there might be someone that knew something and maybe was a little scared to come forward, you know, 36 years ago, but it's a different place in life. And uh, We also tell people all the time, Crime Stoppers, you don't have to tell us. You can tell Crime Stoppers and we can get the information. And, and you know, I think about the family. You know, it's 36 years. It, it seems like, you know, a lot of people would say, well, it's a long time ago, but to a family member, it still hurts, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, not not quite as strange as the other video, but an important one. And hopefully uh, people will see that and contact uh, your department as well. Corporal Collange, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Thanks a lot. We always appreciate the opportunity to get our, uh, our messages out. Thanks.
Well, this next story is both terrifying, but you quickly get over being terrified because it does have a good ending and once again shows how good Samaritans are all around us. It happened when Lisa Solberg was hanging out in English Bay with her dog. And Lisa joins me on the line now to pick up the story from there. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm so happy that things turned out the way they did. But for people who haven't heard this story, maybe walk us through. Uh, You were doing what many people would be doing on an afternoon or a morning, uh, hanging out with your dog. Uh, What happened? Uh, So, yeah, it was just she, um, Griffin goes swimming every morning and it was just a regular day. Um, She was she was playing with another dog and then um, she went out to fetch a big log. So usually she just goes and gets sticks, but a big log was thrown in and uh, she went swimming out to get it and she tried to turn it around to come back to the shore and it was just too heavy and she couldn't maneuver it to bring back to the shore. And for whatever reason, maybe her tooth was embedded in the log or she just couldn't, um, couldn't let go. She just <clears throat> swam right out to sea and um, so I took off my coat and my shoes and I dived in after her and started swimming towards her and calling her and uh, she just wouldn't let go and she went out. He ended up swimming over 100 metres out to sea. So um, it was high tide and probably the current as well was strong. And, um, yeah, so she didn't... Finally, she let go of the log and started swimming towards me. Um, which was a massive relief um, until a couple of seconds later, she lost consciousness and slipped under the surface of the water. Um, and so I managed to just at that stage, I was probably a meter away from her and I got towards her and um, pulled her up above the surface. And yeah, she was unconscious. And um, I screamed out to people by this stage, there's about 20 people um hanging around the rocks in the beach area and I screaming out to someone to help me because by this stage I'm really, really freezing cold and absolutely in a panic that um, that she's potentially um, potentially gone. And, um, yeah, so I just had someone ended up swimming out to me and then another person swam out to me and, and helped me bring her back in because although I am a very confident swimmer, um, yeah, the shock of it all and she was quite heavy and then she's a 60 pound dog and yeah just the, the cold as well it was it took my breath away uh, um, because this was just last week wasn't it this was last Thursday yes it was about this time last Thursday yeah and I, I understand that you like you said you're a strong swimmer you're a, a triathlete yeah. but even even yeah. so that water is cold it is cold yeah and and also being just absolutely in shock like it was the worst moment in my life just seeing her swim out that far and I was trailing her but it I think the current was taking her along and she is quite a fast swimmer so I I was only gaining a little bit um of um yeah distance so um yes I'm so lucky I dived in when I did and that there was all these incredible people there to save the day um people risking their own life jumping in the water to come and help us um, and then by some stroke of luck, um, someone was walking along the seawall with their dog who had done a canine CPR course two years prior. And she ran to the, out to the rocks and um, instructed us to, when we, got, when we had swum her in, 
to hold her upside down and there was a lot of water that came out of her mouth and then lie her down onto the rock and she began the um, the compressions and then the guy that swam out, John, who's also such a hero, as well as Marlo, who's, who's the woman who knew the canine CPR, um, they performed CPR together with the breath and the compressions um, and then she started breathing on her own again after a few minutes of the CPR which is just miraculous. <laughs> those those minutes I can't even imagine what that oh. would have been like for you but how amazing also that somebody who had taken a canine CPR course just oh. happened to be there. Yeah she's walking along at that moment it was and and you know also that she sprung into action because uh, and, and remembered it from two years ago because <laughs> yeah. really it's something that she did and she, she was so calm and so confident that she gave me so much hope. And, uh, and I mean, we still went out of the woods once she started breathing again because you could hear she had a lot of water in her lungs. She was breathing quite um, frantically and um, we still had to get her off the, off the beach um, and then to the animal emergency because she was hypothermic, so her tongue was white and she was really struggling to breathe with the water. Um, and so, yeah, I had some amazing Good Samaritans that helped carry her off the beach. And uh, we had the Vancouver Park Board. There was a guy there called Jordan who was willing to take us. He'd cleared the back of his um, vehicle and was going to take us to the main road to get help. Um, but by the time we got into the back there, the police had turned up, thank goodness, because uh, bystanders had also called police. Um, and they arrived and they were the two wonderful officers were willing to drive us to the animal emergency. So uh, and, and lucky they came when they did, because when we arrived at the animal emergency, which is the Barad Animal Hospital, they were wonderful. And they took her in and they still didn't know if she was going to make it because she was 32 degrees, which is dangerously low and hypothermic for a dog. And um, so they just kept warming her up. And by the time she got to 35 degrees, they said her tail started wagging. So they had some hope that she would um, she would recover. Wow. So, yeah, she's completely fine now. She had an x-ray she, um, and she had a little bit of fluid in her lungs, but it's not too much to worry about. She's completely normal and fine. It hasn't affected her memory or her brain in any way. She's doing all her new and old tricks and as happy as ever. So... Yeah, we're just so, so grateful that everyone was there to help and that we, um, you know, come away from it unscathed. Just, it's truly a story of um, uh, just the community coming together. And it's, I know a lot of people have said it's restored their faith in humanity. So it's a really nice story of complete strangers showing absolute kindness and selfless bravery. And it's just amazing to me still that, that so many things clicked and, and came together yeah. at that time and, and that a, another person jumped into the water uh, to help you and, and the CPR and the police. Uh, have you been able to, I know that you had said that you wanted to be able to thank the people that came out and were all part of this rescue. Have you been able to reach the people or were you able to thank them? Well, um, yes, I've been able to talk to Marlo, who's just an incredible human being and um, we've been we've connected on the phone and through text and we're planning to meet up um, soon when we can coordinate and she wants to uh, see Griffin and we're going to have a walk um, we still haven't been able to contact John who, who's the one who got into the water he also 
was doing the CPR. Um, so he was giving her that strong breath that I couldn't give because I was in shock and freezing cold. Um, and then he also carried her off the beach. So he did so much for us. And, and we we've been to the pet stores, leaving our number and hoping that he'll come in there. But we haven't heard from him as yet. Um, and then I, I got to thank the uh, man Jordan from the, the Vancouver Park Board. I just ran into him yesterday, um, and he actually had Griffin's leash that we was left on the scene, and it was a great moment that we got to reconnect and him tell me his part of the story. And um, yeah, and then I, I still haven't. There was people also that I still haven't been able to uh, have contact with, but some guy that took off his own jacket. He had this. Adidas jacket and he gave it to me to wrap around Griffin to keep her warm and that's just the kindness of a complete stranger that was willing to um, hand over his jacket I just thought that was you know it might only be a small act but it meant so much to me it was just such a kind thing to do and also this another woman who uh, left the beach went home got dry clothes for me and drove to the animal hospital because she knew I was in wet clothes and she wanted to make sure I was warm and comfortable, which is just incredible. I would love to thank her. I don't know who she is. Um, but, yeah, just so many people, very, very kind. Well, if any uh, are listening, hopefully uh, they uh, will and they'll get the message or get in touch with you. It's just mm-hmm. such a great story in this time when there's there's so much negativity. It's just wonderful to hear how everybody came together and that Griffin is doing well. Uh, thank you so much. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and for telling your story today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.